another episode of the podcast for my book, Hopeless Romantic, The Untold History of Ethiopia. Last time we left off at a very juicy place. It was a very uh, uh, suspenseful uh, history that we were talking about. And I know everybody's been waiting, uh, you know, um, for this podcast to come in. And, and, and we are here. I promise I will answer the question, the cliffhanger that I kind of left you on. I promise we will address it. That's where we're starting off. But before, of course, we should uh, do a prayer. Let's gather our thoughts. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, I mean, holy, holy, holy is your name, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask you to help us uh, heal from the wounds that would emerge in the conflict of Ethiopia. Uh, God, I ask you to give us wisdom as we learn about uh, conflicts of our history. And we call you as uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the intercession of the Virgin Mary, and that of the angels and saints, we pray. Amen. Uh, once again, welcome back, everyone, to, to talk about this podcast. If you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you guys to go to Amazon.com and purchase my book, Hopeless Romantic, The Untold History of Ethiopia. Of course, it's good that you listen to the podcast, but if you haven't bought the book, don't just buy the book. Make sure you read it. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dmulina or Twitter at doubtmulina. Six And once again, I want to take a second to thank my patrons who support me. Honestly, I wouldn't be able to do this type of projects without your support. And if you want to become a patron, you may do so by going to patreon.podme.com forward slash Dawit Muluna. Okay. Um, man, oh man, what an episode we had last time. I know it was a lot of information. I know it's like a lot of names to remember. Uh, but I had to set you up in order to get to the exciting things and to know what people are discussing about and what people are talking about. It's important that you get the background information. I didn't want to just start with, you know, the conflicts. You need to know the background and how we get there. And if you were like, you know, that's just a lot of names. I'm not really sure what happened. I was going real fast. Uh, for the important conversation we're having today, uh, what you need to remember and the takeaway from last episode is number one, that, you know, the great Aksumites that ruled Ethiopia, uh, that empire kind of, you know, like died out. And there was a different group of people from uh, Ago that ruled the region. They were different uh, ethnically. And number two, the people of Ago began to rule Ethiopia after the downfall of Aksum. The, the, these are two important points, and they're ethnically different. And number three, people in Tigray and Amara were apparently conspiring against Ago. And number four, uh, Yukuno Amalak from the Amhara tribe apparently killed the king of Zagwe, and then he started to rule after the Aksumites, of course, that's where we get Solomonic dynasty from. These are the takeaways. So there's Ago, who ruled after Aksum. They're ethnically different. And then when Zagwe was ruling, uh, there were people in Tigray and Amhara conspiring against Zagwe. But it was Yukuno Amalak from the Amhara tribe that emerged and killed Zagwe, begging the question, is, are these ethnic feuds really historical i mean this is an ugly part of history and i mentioned we were going to talk about the contentions and the arguments and the fights that did really occur so it appears that there was an ethnic feud taking place in ethiopia during the 13th century 
According to this version of history, because the Ago were from a different tribe, Yukuno Amlak and his Amara troops simply stormed their way into the kingdom and killed the king, the Zagwe king. These events have often been suggested to stem from ethnic disputes, especially by Western scholars in the past. This suggestion even appears to be corroborated by the contemporary Mamluk Chancellor in Egypt, who after hearing about these events, crowned Yukuno Amlak as the king of Amhara. And this is a crucial point. When Yukuno Amlak became a king, he assumed the throne. The chancellor of e in Egypt crowned him as the king of Amhara. If you guys know about Ethiopian history, you know that Solomonic dynasty is often referred to as the Amhara kingdom. And I wonder why. So what a dark period of history, right? Or was it? Now, if we evaluate the sources we have about this event, we begin to see some issues with the narrative of a tribal feud taking place during this period. I'll now give you three reasons why this simply doesn't add up. And I mentioned last podcast, like I love this chapter because this is when I, I started formulating my own ideas. Like before, I kind of was giving you guys a history that some is known, some is not known. But here is when I start kind of like, forming my own thoughts i mean you guys could disagree you guys could agree it's up to you but these are kind of my own ideas i'm pretty proud of them i'm really happy about this so here's what i think really happened so or the reasons why i don't think an ethnic feud as people say ensued during the 13th century simply doesn't add up the first serious flaw we find with the narrative of a uh, 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 ethnic feud taking place at this time is that, and this is key, Yukuno Amlak never claimed to be the king of Amhara. Most of the sources that associate Yukuno Amlak with the Amhara tribe were later manuscript dated and, and several hundred years after his, his death. And the sad thing is, part of Taddeus the scholar we talked about, the great Ethiopian historian, and his consideration for the king's connection with the tribe of Amhara largely depends on the publication of the Italian scholar Carlo Conti Rossini. Remember this name because he will come back later. And Rossini published this idea of an ethnic dispute in his La Caduta delle Dinestia Zagwe, that is the fall of the Zagwe dynasty. And the way that this Italian so-called scholar is able to come to this conclusion, there was some type of ethnic feud between the Amhara and the Zagwe, is because he interprets the names of seven lineages who assisted Yukuno Amlak in military aid to be likely provinces of Shoa, situated in present-day Amhara. But the problem is that Conti Rossini himself is relying on a manuscript written hundreds of years after Yukuno Amlak's reign, and it is not considered to be a reliable source of history. It's written hundreds of years afterwards. All this makes me wonder why this Italian scholar, so-called scholar, Conti Rossini, is attempting to insinuate an ethnic dispute 
being the catalyst for Yukono Amlak's ascendancy to power. Although he's relying on a manuscript dated hundreds and hundreds of years of after the fact. He makes it seem as if our ancestors were simply clashing with each other because of their ethnic differences. Sadly, sadly, his work has in turn served to be the foundation for others to suggest a similar narrative of Ethiopia. If you guys see in uh, YouTube people debating about ethnic feuds and ethnic history and when all these problems occurred, most people will cite Carlo Conti, Carlo Conti Rossini as an authoritative source for history. For some of these foreigners studying Ethiopia, if there were different ethnic groups, it probably meant they did not get along. This view of Africa's history is extremely condescending and similar to the views of colonizers. But you know what? I'm actually going to focus an entire section on this another time. So let's stick to what we're, we, we have planned for today. Um, I'm going to get back to colonizers. I promise. I promise. Uh, but um, going back to Yukuno uh, Amalak and this idea of a king of Amhara. Uh, the reality is if we take away the letter written documents that have been shown to be unreliable that the Italian scholar is relying on, what credible source are we left with to make the claim that Yukuno Amlak's intention to take hold of the throne was ethnically motivated? This is a serious question. Well, we are left with the statements of the Egyptian leader's declaration that he was indeed the king of Amhara, and that last piece of information found in the Kabranegast at the end, we call it a colophon, written in Arabic, which is also connected with Egypt. Are you guys seeing where I'm going with this? We are forced to wonder if it is possible that early Egyptian leaders may have devised a plan to start this narrative of a tribal war? Or even worse, is it possible that they were attempting to pin varying tribes against each other for one reason or another? After all, if you remember from the previous chapters, in the old days, they were not afraid to add false narratives into the text for their own benefits. And we looked at that uh, of several examples in previous podcasts. But what could have been the motivation for the Egyptians to have done such a thing? And we find a possible clue to the answer in an Arabic source that mentions of a letter from an unnamed king of Ethiopia dated about 20 years after the so-called Yukuno Amlak came into power. The letter said the king was presumably requesting that Egypt sends a, a bishop to the land of Ethiopia. Again, we mentioned that it was tradition for the Ethiopians to request a bishop from Egypt, and that's how it come. Moreover, it claimed that this king was not happy about the presence of the Syrian bishops in his country. This bit of information reveals something quite interesting. That is, Ethiopians, at least during the time of Zagwe, had established a relationship with the Syrian 
Orthodox Church. By the way, I've went around and I've talked to clergy members and priests from the Ethiopian tradition, and and most people were not aware that this type of relationship took place during Zagwe's dynasty. This is key for the reason I'm going to uh, propose later on. Uh, if the Ethiopians were establishing a relationship with Syrian, it must have infuriated the Egyptians. If the Ethiopians were able to bypass the Egyptians and receive bishops from Syria, that meant the Egyptians were no longer getting their special presence that often had been a precursor for such requests. Therefore, is it far-fetched to assume the Egyptian leaders of the time recognizing Ethiopia was beginning to break away from the old tradition became concerned and possibly added fictitious information about the Zagwe dynasty and the famous Kuranegast to discredit its authority? Similarly, is it possible that early Egyptians cajoled the newly Solomonic kings with the hope of continuing their quid pro quo agreement of sending an Egyptian bishop in exchange for treasured gifts? I'm just saying something to think about. But overall, I think this whole narrative of the Amhara tribe starting an ethnic feud with Zagwe is too simplistic and it just doesn't make sense. But the second issue I have is that there are hardly any writings about Yukuno Amalak, especially during his reign. On the contrary, after Yukuno Amalak's period, we find many writings about Zagwe and King Naakutolaab. If we were to accept the tribal feud theory, that would mean Yukuno Amalak was at odds with the kings from the Zagwe dynasty simply because of the they were people of Ago. More importantly, he would have felt proud to have been a member of the Amhara tribe to rule the kingdom and would have boasted about his success. But that's not what we find. Now, I mean, sincerely, picture yourself in Yukuno Amlak's shoes. You gather your fellow Amhara tribes and head over to the kingdom and get rid of the last remaining king from the tribe of Ago. You establish the kingdom and declare yourself to be king. Would you then go to write history about how great the kings of Aga were, the people you were just fighting with? I mean, their entire Gudlat hagiographies dedicated to the kings of that era. For example, in the Gudl of Nakutolaab, the Virgin Mary is said to have been present during his baptism. It says, And Our Lady, the Virgin Mary, having come for his questioning, was there. Later on, we learn how the Holy Spirit entered the heart of St. Lalibela, which brings me to my next point. St. Lalibela, the one king that we talked about earlier, is one of the most revered saints in the Ethiopian Orthodox Sohado Church. Most of his writings were written after the so-called King of Amhara, Yukuno Amalai, came into power. If they were fighting, there is no way they would have mentioned a king of Ago descent to have been a saint. And yet, we have come to know and love this king because of the writings of the people that came after Yukuno Amlak, the so-called Amhara uh, tribe that hated the Sagwe dynasty. If there really were a significant amount of tribal feud present, would it make sense for the lives of the kings of Ago to be written by the hands of their supposed enemies, the Amharas, in such a beautiful way? In reality, 
The archaeological evidence suggests that one of the first things Yukon Amlak did upon sitting on the throne was continue the traditions of Zagwe dynasty and help construct a church in the region where the people of Ago had previously ruled. This is why I have a problem with interpreting this period of history through the lens of a tribal feud. For the record, I'm not the only one. The great Gethacho Haile says, how is it possible that we have several manuscripts from the time of Yukon Amalak and practically nothing of importance from the time of the family which he had immediately succeeded or overthrown? Clearly, there's not enough evidence to back up this claim of ethnic disputes being the primary reason for Yukon Amalak's desire to ascend to the throne. This brings me to my last point. Even after Yukuno Amalak, ethnic backgrounds had very role to play in how many of the kings that followed ruling the kingdom. Darasa Ainacho, describing the way these kings ruled, says the following about the people followed uh, that, that ruled after Yukuno Amalak. He said, in general, the Christian kingdom in the 14th century and beyond can be described as divided administratively into provinces, each with its own appointed governor. From this, we can surmise the kings were not interested in pressuring others to adopt their culture, language, or religion. If they're choosing someone from that region to be the appointed governor, then there is a lot more room to sustain their own language, their own culture, their own religion, and so on and so forth, especially in the earlier part of the Solomonic dynasty. Just as any ordinary king would do, they expanded their territory, of course, but were mindful of the locals' culture. By appointing local governors in a given region, the people had the freedom to continue following their own customs and beliefs, at least in the early stages of the Solomonic Empire, just like we mentioned. Hence, we can conclude that the initial cause of Yukono Amlak's desire for kingship was not ethnically motivated. At least that was not the primary factor. I mean, we can't say it was 100%, but we can say it wasn't the primary factor. Instead, all the evidence suggests Yukono Amlak simply wanted to be king. I mean, who doesn't want to be king, right? I mean... Let's not forget that the last king of Zagwe dynasty, whom Yukuno Amlak defeated, came into power only after killing his own cousin. Yet this type of family feud between two cousins would not be considered a tribal dispute. Instead, we read this part of history as two power-hungry men competing for power, which is undoubtedly a narrative that has permeated through the world since the beginning of time until now. And there's nothing very African about this event, but I have to ask this. Why is Yukuno Amalak's desire for kingship suddenly spun around to make it seem like an ethnic tension between two groups? I propose this retelling of history is simply a later invention by people who unintentionally or intentionally had a bias against the history of Ethiopia. If you recall from the previous chapter, we discussed the fictitious character of Prester John, whom Westerners believe originated from Ethiopia. As a result, they made expeditions to East Africa to find this mystical character. Among those who made this brave journey to investigate the matter was Francisco Alvarez in the early 16th century. From his writings, we find that the center of the Ethiopian kingdom was in fact 
Amhara. But Alvarez's writings are not the only ones. Other documents around the same time present, uh, present Amhara being the main city of the kingdom as well. The Portuguese Jesuit Manuel de Almeida goes as far as naming Amhara the heart of the empire. So again, we have got to ask the question, is there any truth to this claim? Was Amhara really some type of center for, for the Solomonic dynasty and were they just the only ruling class in history? See, the problem is foreigners were also referring to the region of Shewa as being the capital city. This is a clear contradiction. How can one kingdom have two cities as the center of its kingdom? Mary Laurie Derat deals with this topic in detail in her book, Le Domaine des Rois Ethiopiennes, that is the domain of the kings of Ethiopians. After reviewing these sources, she was able to determine that the view of Amhara and Shawa being the center of the kingdom was something projected onto the people. In her own words, the Europeans sought to project their vision of a kingdom on Ethiopia. They made Amhara the base of the Ethiopian kings, the hometown, cradle of royalty, and Shawa the capital city. Finally, this information appears to be almost completely at odds since Amhara and Shawa appear to have played the same role. This means outsiders assigned Amhara or Shawa to be the center of its kingdom thereby likely birthing the narrative that Amhara was the dominant force historically. One thing worth mentioning here is our current understanding of ethnicity. If you're familiar with Ethiopian geopolitics, then you probably know that the region of Shoa is currently considered a B part of Amhara. Now, here's where things get interesting. When you read its history, you will learn that Shoa was the name of the medieval Islamic Sultanate around the 13th century. That means this region, which King Yukuno Amlak was supposed to have gathered his troops from, was the home of Muslims and not Christians at the time. Moreover, the region of Wallu, another province in Amhara, is the name of Oromo clans who settled in the region in the late 16th century. Therefore, we find Muslims, Christians, Oromos, and Amharas living in the region we presently think of as being Amhara throughout history. It's hard to believe people were living in total isolation. These communities likely assimilated and ultimately had intermarriages. These groups in turn would have produced the current society, which is an amalgamation of all these societies and groups of people. So if we were to say Amhara was a dominant force in history, which community are we speaking of? Similarly, using the same logic with regarding assimilation of ethnic groups, not to mention the intermarriage of Christian and Muslims, can we really speak of a pure ethnic identity? This is not at all dismissing the reality. Darasainacho goes on to list the various disputes during the reign of the successive kings after Yukuno Amlak. Most of these disputes, as it appears, were in fact ethnically motivated. However, 
Even the conflicts that arose at a later period often stemmed from false narratives likely implanted into the society by early Egyptian authors and European travelers centuries earlier. Because of the initial events surrounding Yukunu Amalak, the Solomonic dynasty was and is branded as the Amharic dynasty by some. This in part, I believe, has led to serious ethnic tensions in our country. The truth is this. Misguided history can be a dangerous thing. You see, history is like a marriage. When married couples fight or have mar mar marital infidelities, an observer may assume they'll get a divorce or that they're unhappy. But to the couple, the fights are simply a disagreement and nothing more. They're able to get past the hurtful words and actions because they recognize there are far greater things that unite them. My dear brothers and sisters, when we study history, especially Ethiopian history, we have to recognize that we're talking about a large society of people who had a great interaction with one another despite their different backgrounds. Sure, they had their own respective languages, religions, and ethnicity, but that does not mean they were always enemies or that they allowed these unique traits to be the center of all their conflicts. Now, the next part that I will talk about is, uh, of course, of the Oromo expansion, another uh, part of history that's often referred to as an ethnic dispute. There is no denying the reality. Ethnic tensions did take place in our history. Uh, we find an example of this dark part of history during the advent of the Oromo community into the central and northern western highlands of southern Ethiopia. Now, we've already seen how this new society was able to have a major impact on Ethiopia in a very short period of time in previous podcasts. But now uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of the issues that surrounded the Oromos as they were entering into Ethiopia. Among those who clearly voiced a position was the 16th century figure, Abba Bahari. If you guys don't know Abba Bahari, very, very controversial figure. And especially in the Oromo community, uh, he does not have a good name. Now, in his famous, or maybe I should say infamous work, Zinahu Legala, uh, that is the report of the Gala. By the way, we don't use this term anymore. It's a very condescending uh, term to use for Oromos. Uh, that is the title of the book, and that's the only reason why I'm using it, but we don't use that term. And, and, and in this work, he describes the community in a very unkind manner. We get a sense of his prejudice against the Oromos as he opens the report in the following manner. Uh, thus, I begin writing the report of Gala, just as I have known the number of its tribe and the work of its tribe's eagerness in killing souls and their offensive culture. If there is anyone who says to me, why write the report of an evil society like that of a good society? I'll answer and reply to him saying, search within the books and you will see that the report of Muhammad and that of his tribe is written and yet they are our enemies by faith. Again, there are um, people who say, uh, you know, uh, in history, there's nothing negative written about Oromos and and why uh, talk about Ababa Hari. Well, I mean, we have to, you know, face the reality. Negative things were written and we have to address it. That's just a fact. Um, we have to deal with it. 
Uh, now, even some scholars have debated about the meaning of uh, the word gala um, and who the term is really referring to in historical times. Uh, but Getacho Haile points out that Bahari, uh, this author, is most definitely referring to the people of Oromo. Uh, and we're able to derive uh, at this conclusion because the report that Bahari goes on to mention uh, the Gada system known to the people of Oromo and their expansion into the central parts of Ethiopia. So we know for it, uh, undoubtedly, that, that he's talking about the Oromo tribe. Uh, this work expresses Bahari's frustration in their ability to gain so much power in a little time. Uh, he was inspired to give this account of the Oromos after he himself was driven out of from his home during the expansion. After leaving his home, he was able to find refuge in the imperial circle and became the servant of the Ethiopian king, which makes Bahari's work that much more disappointing because this means someone who worked directly with the king had extreme prejudice against a group of people who would go on to play a major role in the evolution of Ethiopia. Again, some people don't want to talk about it, but this is the reality. It happened. As concerning as Bahari's statements are, we must also not forget his experience with the Oromo community was not positive. Although the migration of the Oromo to the central part of Ethiopia was at times peaceful, there were also a significant, a significant part of the migration process that included war, as one would imagine. In fact, Bahari himself, as we mentioned, was a victim of these raids that took place. His house was burned down, and he went out to seek refuge at a royal court. His strong criticism, therefore, is based on an extreme case he had the misfortune to witness. At any rate, at any rate, it would not be right to assume all members of the royal court shared sentiments similar to Bahari. For example, King Susunios is believed to have grown up among the Oromos. He not only appreciated their culture, but even spoke their language. Later on in his lifetime, when he was sitting on the throne, he filled the royal offices with his Oromo supporters. And there were others, for example, Iyasu II, married the Oromo family of Yagu and his son Yoas uh, I, who is obviously half Oromo by way of his mother, succeeded him on the throne. Eventually, their influence was so significant that the common language that is the lingua franca in Gondar was Oromiña. And this is in the 18th century. Once again, there is no way to get around it. Many conflicts did take place in history. And it should make us cringe when we read about this. There's nothing awesome about these events. There were, without a doubt, ethnic disputes that took place in Ethiopia. We just have to admit it. But again, some of the claims that we appear to hear in today's society seems like they're not accurate descriptions of the conflicts themselves. For example, yes, Oromos did have a role to play in, in the imperial court and they had interactions with the kings and, and, and uh, but there were other times where people did have prejudice and wrote unkind things about them. These things did occur and we have to address it. With that being said, I think I'm going to stop here for today. And I hope you guys are enjoying. The chapter is still not finished. Like I said, this is a big, big, big chapter. Uh, hopefully, we'll finish next time. And I'll, I'll see you next time 
Uh, once again, I want to encourage you guys to buy my book, Hopeless Romantic, The Untold History of Ethiopia. Uh, if you haven't done so already, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dmulina or Twitter at davidmulina6. And if you want to become a supporter on Patreon, you can become a patron by going to patreon.podbean.com forward slash davidmulina. Thanks again. I'll see you guys next time.